What's going on, guys? Welcome back to The Control Room. I'm your host, Israel Johannes. Now, we have some history to address. First off, the top topics. For the Mavericks, they had some dismal defense with a lack of energy and focus, and we'll break down the consequences of that. But recently named All-Star, Luka Doncic dropped 73 points to respond to that negativity. Yes, he dropped 73. We'll break down that game. Then for the Pelicans, they split their homestand, and then they had a matchup with the best in the West in the Oklahoma City Thunder. So we'll take a look into that matchup, not only on the Pell side, but also on the Thunder side. And speaking of the Thunder, Chet Holmgren and Victor Wimbanyama, the leading two candidates for Rookie of the Year, faced off, and it was a, and it was a lot better than the last time. So we will take a look at that game, as well as look at the big three for the Thunder against the Pelicans in that game I just mentioned. Now... This dismal defense from Dallas, they had a three-game losing streak, which was their second of the season, tied their season long. They had lost to the Lakers, the Celtics, and the Suns by a combined 49 points. Not great. Now, their schedule kind of changed because they were scheduled to play the Golden State Warriors, but due to the passing of Warriors assistant coach Dejan Milojevic. The Warriors postponed a couple of their games. The Mavericks game against the Warriors has now been moved to April, early April. So the Mavericks had about four days before they had another game. They even got a practice in. So you would have thought, okay, there would have been a little bit more of a fight against Boston. But this entire stretch of those three games, not necessarily what came after, but specifically those three games between January 17th and January 24th. I've said multiple times the importance of offensive, defensive, and net rating because they're, they are more accurate representations of how teams play on both ends of the floor rather than just points per game and opponent points per game. So, the Mavs' offensive rating from January 17th to January 24th among that three-game losing streak was 108.9, which was 26th in the NBA in that span. Their defensive rating was 126, which was 28th in the NBA. And their net rating was a negative 17.1, which was 30th last in the NBA. Um, and then on top of that, their player impact estimate was 40.8, which was also 30th in the NBA. And just so you know exactly what player impact estimate is, it measures a player's, according to the NBA stats glossary, it measures a player's overall statistical contribution against the total statistics in games they play in. It also yields results which are comparable to other advanced statistics, such as player efficiency rating using a simple formula. Now, it what it what what that formula does is it basically combines a bunch of stats that you see on a box score and provides a little bit less weight to two or three categories, puts it all into one calculation, and then that's a number. So that number that was calculated for the Mavericks was the lowest of all 30 teams in that span. Now let's look at the pivotal categories that the Mavs were struggling in 
in that stretch, right? They're one of four teams to go winless. Two of them went 0-3. Oh, one of them was the Mavs, and then another two teams went 0-4. Oh, in the general categories, such as points per game, the Mavs only scored 109.7, which was 24th. 45.5% from the floor, 25th. From three, they shot 34.1%. That was 23rd. From the free throw line, they shot 70%, which was 30th. They only stole the ball four times a game. That was 30th. They blocked shots four times a game. That was tied 26th. And Mavs opponents turned the ball over only 11 times per game, which was tied for 24th in the NBA. And then in the miscellaneous categories, what I also noticed is that the Mavs had only 10.3 fast break points per game, which is 27th, and then 10.7 points off turnovers per game, which is 28th. So normally categories where they have been improving, where they normally are doing better, not so much in this stretch. On top of that, right, it's not just the team, but also your captain, Luka Doncic, was having a bunch of frustrations throughout, throughout those three games. And it was mostly noticeable in those home games between Boston and Phoenix, where he was bickering with refs and generated two technical fouls, one against the Celtics, one against the Suns. Didn't get ejected, but you only have a limit of 16 before the one-game suspension kicks in in the regular season. And he's been subject to that situation before, multiple times so this is nothing new for him that doesn't mean it's acceptable uh, but that's the situation that he's put himself in throughout this week and things that people have noticed outside of Dallas inside of Dallas despite all the great things that he does one of his main drawbacks is that he doesn't get back on defense because he's spending too much time making his argument to the referees and it costs his team when they play defense because they're basically playing four on five. So there's going to be a mismatch somewhere. And that energy can deflate a team, especially against powerhouses like Boston and Phoenix. So let's look at net ratings among players who played 25 minutes a game, at least 25 minutes a game. And I picked that number specifically because... I wanted, given the short sample size of that week, I wanted players who were on the floor very often. So there were 162 players on this list between January 17th and 24th who played 25 or more minutes a game. And of those 162, the worst net rating belonged to Derek Jones Jr., which was a negative 39.1 followed by a Derek Lively II, who was the third worst at negative 22. Now, that's unfair to those guys because they have the responsibility of guarding some of the more capable offensive players on the other side. So they're more likely to give up some buckets because that's just the volume that they're facing. It's just a num it's just an efficiency number that is tied to that player for that specific stretch. And it seems ridiculous, but that's kind of how the ebbs and flows of the NBA season work. 
And speaking on that, Derek Live of the second had to guard Anthony Davis, Al Horford, and Yusuf Nurkic throughout those three games. So not easy for a rookie. Then Luka Doncic had a negative 20 net rating, which was fifth worst in the NBA. And then Tim Hardaway Jr. had a negative 18.8, which was seventh worst in the NBA. So you have four Mavericks who are in the bottom seven in net rating across that stretch among guys who play 25 or more minutes a game. That's too many guys on one team, right? So it became a criticism of Luka followed by what happened at the end of the Phoenix Suns game where a fan was taken out of the arena. He wasn't he didn't leave the arena. He reportedly was in the concourse to watch the rest of the game, but he left his seat after yelling to Luca about, about his size and needing to get on a treadmill. Um, and he was, he was saying, Luke, Luke is tired. Get yourself on a treadmill. And then he, he walked out of the arena. So that was reported by Tim McMahon of ESPN. Luca saw it, although he, Tim McMahon was not the only one to tweet about it. Everyone on press row tweeted about it. Uh, but Luca then got into it with media saying like stuff, stuff as um, he was saying, oh, I'll be the bad guy in the media. Right. Like uh, there's been some contention with McMahon and members of the Mavericks like Luca, but it honestly goes back to Jason Kidd. He's gotten on Tim McMahon more than he should because Jason Kidd has unwarrantedly gone off on media when simple questions about his response, about his head coaching responsibilities have come up where you would think he would put the onus on himself. But I'm just speculating here. It seems like it's a trickle down effect because kid has done it. Luca feels empowered to do it because Jason kid is a player's coach. Either way, Luca is his own man. He's 24 years old. He's about to be 25 at the end of February. So it's his decision whether or not to go after Tim McMahon. He was he didn't shower yet, so he was probably still running on emotions and fumes and all that. But this is the odd part about being in the media, quote-unquote, the media, that you have to deal with the objectivity of saying what happened while also providing it within the correct context and still maintaining relationships with players and staff and all of that. At the end of the day, it's not our job to, it's not our job to constantly show the positives of every person on every team. It's just to objectively report what's there. And I'm not trying to absolve Tim McMahon here. It's just that, if there is a if there's a deficiency somewhere it would be our journalistic responsibility it would it would it requires an integrity in order to report such a thing right so if the mavs are struggling in rebounding it is my job to show you how the mavs are struggling in rebounding unless told otherwise so yeah there's going to be some times where you're not going to like what you see from the media. There are some times where there is a bit of spin. So you have to 
take things with a grain of salt from time to time. But for the most part, the the main job of the media is just, is just to report what's there. So this back and forth felt a little unwarranted, but given that Luca is who he is, he's, he's a superstar of, of a magnitude we, we rarely ever see. That's just the delicate balance that we have to deal with constantly. Now, the best thing for Luca to do after a situation like that, because he was not looked at in a positive light whatsoever after that Phoenix game, was to respond in their next game against Atlanta. Now, they did have to travel. They had to fly to Atlanta only to fly back. But before they played that game against Atlanta, Luca was named an all-star for the fifth consecutive time. It was his fourth straight selection, fourth straight selection as an all-star starter. He's now the sixth player to earn five all-star selections before turning 25 years old. Following the likes of LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, Isaiah Thomas of the bad boys, Detroit Pistons and Anthony Davis. And then he went on TNT and talked to Ernie Johnson and the crew about that situation in Phoenix and how he probably Shouldn't have got the fan kicked out even. But really, it's the play on the court and how you behave from that point on, right? It's show me, don't tell me. So then Luca decided to show us. Against the Hawks, Luca scored 73 points. Yeah, I'm not making that up. 73 points. On 25 of 33 shooting, 75.8%, 8 of 13 from 3, which is 61.5%, 15 of 16 from the free throw line, which is 93.8%, with 10 rebounds, 7 assists, and a steal. So that's now a career high in points and field goals made, a season high in free throws, and I've, I've typed in a bunch of milestones that he had with this game, They're not even all of them, but the 73 points he scored is now a franchise record. He previously, he previously set the record with 60 on December 27th, 2022 in that overtime game against the Knicks. He also had a franchise record, 41 points in the first half. And to get to 41 points in the first half, he scored 23 points in the second quarter, which is the most in any second quarter in his career and it ties the fourth most in any quarter in his career. And then among his 41 points in the first half, that was a career high and a franchise record. And he's now the 13th player in, in the play-by-play era with 40 points in a half. This is also the 15th instance. So one player did it a few times. He is one of three players since 1997-1998 with 16 or more field goals made in a half, third most in any half, most in the first half. (laughs) Because Kobe Bryant and Brandon Jennings did this in the second half of those two games. This is the first time this has happened in the first half. He also had the third highest field goal percentage since 1997-1998, with 15 or more field goals made in a half. Which... He shot 76.2% in the first half. 
on 16 of 21 from the floor. So a lot of these stats, if I didn't find them myself or we didn't have our broadcast team put this all together, it came from Mavs PR. So these are official stats. Then the 73 73 points themselves, it ties the fourth most in NBA history. And it was the most since Kobe Bryant's 81 points on January 22nd, 2006 versus Toronto. This is now one of 15 70 plus point games in NBA history. And he is the second player ever with multiple 60 point games before his 25th birthday. The only other player to do that was Michael Jordan. Yeah, how about that for a response, right? So let's look at the rest of the team because if Luka scored 73, how did the rest of the game go? Josh Green scored 21 points on 8 of 12 shooting, 66.7% from the floor, 4 of 5, 80% from 3, with 4 assists. So he had a season high in points, he tied a season high in field goals made and field goals uh, field goals attempted, and he tied a season high in 3-point field goals made. Then Tim Hardaway Jr. in the second half had 13 points on 3 of 7 uh, from the 3-point line, that's 42.9%. With four of four from the free throw line, two rebounds and two assists. Now in the fourth quarter, he scored 10 of those 13 points on two of four shooting from three and four of four from the free throw line. So a lot of that production came in the fourth quarter. And this was another clutch victory for the Mavs. They are they after this game, they are 15 and five in clutch games entering January 27th. That tied the best win percentage in the NBA behind with Milwaukee at 18 and six. And it tied the second best start through the first 20 clutch games in franchise history. On top of that, they also shoot, they shot 95% from the free throw line in the clutch, which is the best in the NBA and the best in a season in franchise history. So great response. Can that carry over, especially in a back-to-back where you have to travel? A little difficult, isn't it? So the Mavs traveled from Atlanta to play a back-to-back. Not only that, the Dallas Stars had to play a hockey game early. And then the arena was transformed, and then the Mavericks came in late, later that day and and then played against the Sacramento Kings. In this game, Luka Doncic had 28 points on 9 of 26 shooting, which is only 34.6%, and shot 1 of 9 from 3, 11.1%. One of those threes was, a, was essentially a heave. It's not like it he was attempt actually attempting nine true threes, but nonetheless, he only made one and then nine of 12 shooting from the free throw line, which is 75% with 10 rebounds, 17 assists, two steals and a block. So he's now scored 101 points in 91 minutes in his last two games. And despite him getting another triple double this season, He got hit with his 10th technical foul this year, which is now his third in his last four games. So that's not great for that limit of 16. He's really closing in on it, and we're still only in January. Grant Williams, however, had his best game of the season with 27 points on 9 of 16 shooting from the floor, 56.3%, 7 of 10 from 3, This is the three-point shooting we've been waiting to see. 70% from three. Eight rebounds, three assists, three steals, and a block. That was a career high in points 
It tied his career high in steals. He had season highs in field goals made and field goals attempted. And then he tied his season highs in three-point field goals made and attempted. To add to that, Derek Lively had 13 points on six of nine shooting, 66.7%, with nine rebounds and a steal, and he had a team best, plus 11, plus minus. And then Tim Hardaway Jr. had 19 points on eight of 17 shooting, 47.1%, three of nine from three, four rebounds, and Josh Green rounded out the double-digit scores with 11 points on four of nine shooting, 44.4%, with five assists. So that's box score numbers, right? The Mavs weren't really close at any point in the game until the fourth quarter when shots really started to fall. As a whole, if you look at certain numbers such as assists, right? The Mavericks get a lot of assists from Luka, but it's not often they have as many assists as they did in this game. 35 assists ties the second most this season. 29 of those assists came from three players, 17 from Luka, 7 from Jaden Hardy, and five from Josh Green. This is only the first loss this season when they dish 30 or more assists in a game. So they are now 5-1 and one this season. So as I said, the fourth quarter got them close. The first three quarters, on the other hand, made it very difficult to catch up. They were down by as many as what it looked like, 23. So how can the Mavs get through this brutal stretch? Last episode I had mentioned how difficult of a stretch this is going to be up until the All-Star break, their health and their defense are critical. They must have energy all game long, and of course, they need to get healthy. Difficult to do when Kyrie still isn't available. They have implemented Dante Exum a little bit more, but Dwight Powell is also, I know what people are thinking about Dwight Powell, but Dwight Powell is more reinforcement, and he is not available right now. So Rashawn Holmes has seen a little bit more action these days. The Mavs have a lot cut out, a lot to work through within the next couple of weeks. We'll see where they go. It's going to be a difficult stretch, but it starts with Luka and he, his energy has to get back on track. But that man needs to sleep. He, re- he really does because a back-to-back is a, it's quite unfair considering everything that he's done the last couple of days. So get your temper in check. Don't fight with refs. Get back on defense. Sleep. Play well. The Mavs will be fine. Let's transition to the Pelicans and the Thunder and take a look at some of those topics that I mentioned at the top of the show. We're going to take a look at the Pelicans now. They beat down the Utah Jazz, put on a scoring clinic with a season-high 153 points. 43 of those points came in the second quarter. That's the third most in any second quarter this season. Ties the sixth most in any quarter this season. In the first half, the Pelicans put up 77, which is the most in the first half this season. Fourth most in the first half in franchise history. And the second most in any half this season. A lot of those points came on the fast break. They scored 35 fast break points, which is their second most this season, and it ties the fifth most in franchise history. And they also had a franchise record, 41 assists. Madison Hawk loves it when the Pelicans are passing the ball. This game is another example of that. Some of those assists came from Zion Williamson, 
but he had more than you'd ever think he'd have. He had a career-high 11 assists versus the Utah Jazz. His previous high was 9, which he had accomplished three other times. Zion has now matched or set his career high in assists three times this season. That's an effect of the James Borrego offense that's been installed this offseason. The Pelicans had seven double-digit scores led by C.J. McCollum's 33 points. They're now 7-1 in games this season with seven or more double-digit scores, and they've now won their seventh straight game with seven or more players in double figures. So let's take a, a sneak peek at their next opponent, not the one that's after this episode is released, the one following the Jazz game. That happened to be the West-leading Oklahoma City Thunder. To do that, we need to take a look at what the Thunder was doing beforehand, which they had to play the Spurs in NBA Rivals Week. In this game, Thunder and Spurs, the Thunder scored 33 points off turnovers, which was their second most this season, 64 bench points, which was their second most this season, 64 points in the paint, which ties the fourth most this season, and 20 fast break points. Now, 20 fast break points is a lot. The average is 14.3, and I'll I'll mention why that's important. So this season, the Thunder are 10 and 1 when they have 20 or more fast break points. And they are 21 and 2 when they have 15 or more fast break points. Right? So 15 means that you've gone above the average and they're unstoppable. They're starting to look like teams that make deep playoff runs because they consistently can get a lot of fast break points. Even when they don't have 15, they find other ways to win. So they've already played 23 games with 15 or more. They've played 11 games with 20 or more fast break points. That is a strength of the Thunder, and they continue to build on it game after game. Now let's look at the big three in company in this game. SGA had 32 points. That was his 32nd 30-point game this season. It would not be his last. Chet Holmgren had 17 points on 7 of 13 shooting, 53.8%, 2 of 4 from 3, 9 rebounds, 4 assists, 1 steal, and 3 blocks. And then J-Dub had 13 points on 6 of 12 shooting, 5 rebounds, 7 assists, 2 steals. And then Aaron Wiggins... I got to bring up Aaron Wiggins in this game because he had a season-high 22 points on 9 of 11 shooting, 81.8%, 4 of 6 from 3, 66.7%, and he tied a season-high with a block. Now, before I get to what Victor Wembanyama did on the other side, this game, I think more people are starting to notice that when Chet and Wemby face off, but really, like, when you have two stars face off in there, somewhat the same position, but not exactly the same position. You wonder why they're not guarding each other all the way through the game as generations prior have. But we've heard this before in cases like, let's say, Steph Curry, where if you're guarding the best player all the time, then you might not have enough output on offense. So if you have a better defender on your team, let them handle your opponent's best offensive player. And so a majority of the time, you're going to see guys like Lou Dort on guys like Victor Wembanyama, despite the height difference. But there are other times where 
If it's not hunted in the pick and roll, sometimes it's just desired. Chet will go up against Wembenyama. That fourth quarter, the first six minutes of the fourth quarter, was a nice back and forth and an, a good look at how that rivalry is going to play out over the course of their careers. It's not something to be alarmed at. It's just the way that the NBA is played these days. But they don't like each other. <laughs> they don't look like they like each other, at least. And when they face off against one another, it's one of the best matchups for young athletes. Now, Victor Wembanyama in this game had 24 points on 9 of 18 shooting, 50%. 6 of 8 from the free throw line, 75%. 12 rebounds, 4 assists, a steal, and 4 blocks. So he was still very effective in this game. It's just that the Thunder are much better as a team. Because that final score was 140 to 114. So I only bring this game up to talk about the miscellaneous categories and just how well the the mainstays of the Thunder, the main players of that of that team, played in this game to then lead into how they played against the Pelicans because it ended up being more of the same. The Pelicans gave up 20 turnovers in their matchup against the Thunder, and they allowed 22 points off turnovers against the Thunder. Now remember, in the previous game for the Thunder, they scored 33 points off turnover. So if you give the Thunder the ball, they will score on you. So don't do that. The Thunder, by the way, as of a couple days ago, the Thunder are second in the NBA in six, with 16.3 deflections per game, second in the NBA with 8.4 steals per game, and first in the NBA with 20.2 points off turnovers per game. So it is literally numerically, statistically, a strength. If they take the ball away from you, you will not win games. For the Thunder, they scored 11 points off seven Pelicans turnovers in the second quarter. That led to a plus 11 point differential in the second quarter where the Thunder scored 28, the Pelicans only scored 17. And they forced seven Pelicans turnovers in the fourth quarter They were limited to only three points off turnovers in that quarter, but held the Pelicans to 7 of 17 shooting, which was 41.2%, so kind of low in today's NBA. And then the Thunder's big three against the Pelicans. SGA, by the way, was named an all-star starter for the first time in his career. He had 31 31 points on 10 of 21 shooting, 47.6%, 3 of 8 from 3, 37.5%. That's a, that's a lot of three-point attempts for a Shea. I normally don't see him attempt that many. Eight of nine from the free throw line, 88.9%. Four rebounds, five assists, two steals, and a block. And he now leads the league with 33 30-point games this season. The next most is Luka. He's about two or three games behind him. Chet Holmgren had 20 points on nine of 16 shooting, so even more efficient. with 13 rebounds, one steal, and two blocks. He tied his career high of 13 rebounds for the third time this season. So he is effective at getting the boards, although the Thunder as a whole are not. Jalen Williams, J-Dub, scored 15 points, 7 of 14 shooting, 4 rebounds, 7 assists, 11 points in the second half, and 9 points in the fourth quarter. So we've talked about this on air multiple times now. J-Dub is one of the best in the fourth quarter, as Kyrie was last year. 
right? J-Dub now is seventh in the NBA in fourth quarter scoring in January this season with 8.3 fourth quarter points per game. So he's the finisher if Shea already isn't, right? Shea is one of those guys where you can just give him the ball and he'll make something happen. But J-Dub has slowly become the guy that the Thunder can go to when they just need a bucket, when they need a big time shot. J-Dub is that guy. So he is my, he's still my leading candidate for most improved player this season. And that would be crazy for the Thunder if they had an MVP, if they had a rookie of the year, and if they had the most improved player all come from that team. They have a legitimate case that all three could happen. So what do they have coming up? They have a game against Detroit that got pushed up because the Detroit Lions made the NFC Championship game. So that game will be at 1 o'clock on Sunday, January 28th. That's literally in a few hours. So in the next segment, we'll talk about some of the upcoming matchups for the next week. That comes next. Let's take a look at the all-star starters for this year's all-star game in Indianapolis. The fan voting has closed. We now know who's going to start in the East and the West, and we're waiting to hear about the reserves. They will be announced this upcoming Thursday. The Eastern Conference starters are led by Giannis Antetokounmpo as the captain, and the other four players will be Joel Embiid of the 76ers, Tyrese Halliburton of the Pacers, Damian Lillard of the Bucks, and Jason Tatum of the Celtics. And then in the Western Conference, the captain is Los Angeles Lakers forward LeBron James. And the other four players are Luka Doncic of the Mavericks, Kevin Durant of the Suns, Shea Gilgis-Alexander of the Thunder, and Nikola Jokic of the Nuggets. So those 10 are in. There is an idea as to who the reserves will be, but they will be selected, I believe, by the coaches. And we'll find out the, the, the next seven slots available in each conference once that comes out later this week. That will be announced on TNT. So that's going to be an enticing event to watch. I mean, All-Star, there's a lot of criticism around how the All-Star game is designed, but Adam Silver has tried to make a way to put more importance in the All-Star game, to have more effort in the All-Star game. And we're now back to East and West. It's not, it's not going to be the blacktop, you know, pickup style that we had seen the last few years. This is back to traditional East and Western conference teams. Next up in the in our upcoming topics, we have the Milwaukee Bucks, as I had mentioned with their superstars. The franchise has now fired their head coach, Adrian Griffin. They've hired Doc Rivers, and Doc Rivers will debut as their head coach on Monday against the Celtics. So, there's been some mixed reaction, considering they were 30-13 and 13 when he got fired. It's a double-edged sword because the Bucks, when they got Adrian Griffin, at this point you might have heard already, the expectations were not where they are now, which is why they made this change. But it still is a 
it's still a little screwed up how Griffin was put into an impossible situation. Given what he was initially sign, signing up for, it kind of feels like what happened with Steve Nash almost. But at least Adrian Griffin had some coaching experience. The main, the main issue, maybe not the main issue, at least for me, one of the issues that I see is another one of those player media situations where you got, you got guys like Giannis Antetokounmpo saying, I was surprised at the firing. Now, I'm just speaking from how I feel, how I'm thinking about that situation. And most people will tell you when you're a superstar and you can demand certain changes to happen in your franchise, you can't be surprised by a firing. You just can't because even if the front office, even though the front office came out and said, no, this is an organizational decision. This did not come from the players. I don't buy it. You can't look me in the eye and tell me Giannis did, did not know about this. Hello, he's been, he's been the reason you're making these moves. What do you mean he doesn't know about this? It doesn't make sense. So it is our job to parse what is true and what is not, to know when we are being lied to and when we're not. And now I'm not about to accuse Giannis of lying or the Bucks organization of lying to the media, but there are ways to know whether or not things check out. Like it, it just, it doesn't make logical sense. If it doesn't make logical sense, it's right to question it, right? But it's not like it's going to be a story down the line where we'll say, oh, the Bucks lied about it. Like it, it doesn't, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Doc Rivers is going to be the head coach and the Bucks will go as far as they end up going. So I'm not going to lose sleep over it. It's just, it's just one of those things that I'm like, you can't fool us. You, you can't fool most people. And we're not going to act like you can fool most people. Therefore, we will report what we know. And, you know, as, 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 PR, as PR as certain teams and athletes have to be, sometimes just better not, just don't say that. Just don't say that. We'll catch it every time. All right. Next week's topics will be a recap of week 14. Things will somewhat stabilize as we get closer to the All-Star break. We're getting close to that break time. That Not necessarily the midway point of the season. We're already past that, but definitely three quarters into the season where we can look at teams that are about to make a playoff push, teams that might fall out of the standings. We'll keep an eye on all that over the next week, several weeks down the line. Now let's take a look at the NBA schedule. The NBA tip-off among national TV. Tuesday, January 30th will be the Pacers and the Celtics at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on TNT, followed by the 76ers and the Warriors at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on TNT. Wednesday, January 31st will be the Phoenix Suns and the Brooklyn Nets at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Central on TN on ABC, excuse me. And then the Bucks and the... Trailblazers will play at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on ESPN. Thursday, February 1st will be a great matchup between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Boston Celtics. Storied rivalry there. 
7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on TNT, followed by the 76ers and the Jazz at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on TNT. Saturday, February 3rd, will be the Lakers and the Knicks at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Central on ABC, Saturday primetime. And then Sunday, February 4th, will be the Clippers and the Heat at 6 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Central on ESPN. Now, local NBA tip-off, I did not mention a single game of Mavericks, Pelicans, and Thunder in that national tip-off. They don't have a national game this upcoming week. So let's look at where you can find those three teams on your local networks. Monday, January 29th, the New Orleans Pelicans will play the Boston Celtics. They will see their old friend Drew Holiday at 7.30-6.30 Central on Valley Sports New Orleans and NBC Sports Boston. The Minnesota Timberwolves and the Oklahoma City Thunder will play a divisional matchup again at 8-7 Central on Valley Sports North and Valley Sports Oklahoma. And then the Orlando Magic and the Dallas Mavericks will play at 8-30-7.30 Central on Valley Sports Florida and Valley Sports Southwest. Wednesday, January 31st, the Mavs and the Timberwolves will play at 8-7 Central on Valley Sports Southwest and Valley Sports North. The Pelicans and the Rockets will play at 8-7 Central on Valley Sports New Orleans and Space City Home Network. And then the Nuggets and the Thunder, another enticing matchup between some heavyweights in the West, will play at 8-7 Central on Altitude Sports and Valley Sports Oklahoma. Then Friday, February 2nd, the Pelicans and the Spurs will play at 8-7 Central on Valley Sports New Orleans and Valley Sports Southwest in the San Antonio area. And the Hornets and the Thunder will play at 8-7 Central on Valley Sports Southeast in the Charlotte area. And KSBI, so that will be over the air in Oklahoma City. And Tulsa is a different channel, but look at your local listings for that specific game on Friday. Saturday, February 3rd, the Bucks and the Mavs will play at 9.30, 8.30 Central on Valley Sports Wisconsin and Valley Sports Southwest. And, the, and on Sunday, February 4th, the Raptors will play the Thunder at 7.6 Central on Sportsnet in Toronto and Valley Sports Oklahoma. So that is the lineup for this upcoming week. Thank you guys for watching and listening all the way up until this point. I really appreciate it every week. Tell your friends, tell your family continue to do everything that comes with consuming this content. I enjoy doing this every week. So that does it for me. This has been The Control Room. I'm your host, Esrael Johannes, signing off.